Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is October the 10th. It's a Monday. And uh, we're going to do episode 759 of the Survival Podcast. I know it's a Monday. But since I was away last week for the Self-Reliance Expo in Utah, which I'll tell you a little bit about uh, toward the end of the housekeeping segment today, because there's some important stuff about that. Don't tune out on me. Don't skip the housekeeping today. Um, but since I was there, I lined up some uh, shows in advance, and I did uh, quite a few interviews last week, and we had Frank Sharp on Friday. So I'm going to make up for missing the listener call show Friday by doing a listener call show on a Monday. I can change the rules, I guess. You know, That's what I always tell you to do anyway. So uh, we will have your calls. Remember, if you'd like to be featured in a show like this, they usually are on Fridays, but you can call any day you want to. Find a clear, quiet place, you know, where there's not a lot of background noise. Make a phone call. Call 866-65-THINK. Leave your question or comment in two minutes or less. Be direct and to the point. We'll try to get you on the air. Before I get to your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, silverandgoldshop.com. You know, um... Actually, while I was in Utah, I had uh, a couple different little kiddos brought to the booth and said, you know, teach them something. And we actually taught them something about silver and the value of silver. You know, I told a little kid, I think he must have been around seven years old at the oldest. Uh, I asked him what a gallon of gas cost, and he knew. He was informed. Hey, he was at a prepper expo. And uh, I explained to them in 1964 that, uh, you know what, a silver quarter would have bought a gallon of gas. And that same quarter today would buy actually more than a gallon of gas. And that, it, you know, obviously the regular quarter today wouldn't buy a gallon of gas. You know what? He snapped to it like that. Seven-year-old kid. Didn't take much of an explanation. He can figure it out. You can figure it out. Silver is a great way to preserve your wealth. Check out silverandgoldshop.com for a cool way to do that. Next up today, harvest eating. You know, we grow all kinds of cool stuff in our gardens, and I talk about all kinds of weird, exotic plants that you can grow. Uh, you go to CSAs, and instead of just getting peppers and tomatoes, sometimes they do things like give you a great big giant Armenian cucumber or, you know, a big old pile of kale or God knows what else, and you might be sitting there looking at it going, Never cooked this before. I don't know what to do with it. Well, get on over to HarvestEating.com where Chef Keith Snoke teaches you how to cook seasonally and locally by focusing on techniques instead of recipes. And if you do that, you'll learn a lot about how to cook great meals from your fa for your family. You'll save a lot of money. He's got some other cool stuff there, too, like his book, his membership, uh, and some other cool stuff. So check out HarvestEating.com today. And remember, when you're there... The one out of all his seasonings, the one that I recommend the most highly, not that there's anything uh, I don't like about any of them, they're all awesome, but the one that like I try to stay in stock on all the time is the uh, Montreal Steak Seasoning. Uh, if you want to make a piece of beef on your grill that you will not believe, check that particular seasoning uh, option out. Next up, remember to connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Remember also that BulkAmmo.com is doing a contest. I think you have till the 22nd to get entered, so that's like 12 days left. You just have to answer some questions or ask some questions on their website. 
and uh, you'll get entered. And they're giving away over $500 worth of ammo. I'm trying to bring a big prize to you guys every month right now. Uh, and that's the big one this month, over $500 worth of ammo. And there are like three winners, so there's a good chance to win there instead of just one winner like the last contest we did. So I'll put a link in today's show notes on how you can enter to win that. All you got to do is go buy, pick a product on their site, and ask a question, and put your first name, dash TSP, uh, and that'll get you entered in the contest. But full details, again, in today's show notes if you just link off to them. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, remember, Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, uh, firefighters, you guys send me an email before you join, and I'll be happy to give you a special service discount. Uh, I actually had somebody come up to me in Utah and say, hey, why do you include Peace Corps in this? And I said, well, because I, they have a special place in my heart. I knew some guys that were serving in the Peace Corps in uh, Honduras, not far from where I was located when I was there uh, in, uh, in the Aguan River Valley. And uh, it was pretty rough conditions that we lived and worked in. Uh, but when I talked to them, we were living like kings compared to how they were living. And I can tell you this. When they went home, the people that they worked with and helped and support had a very positive view of our nation. And uh, they were right with me in the same scrub desert jungle mix with the volcanic soil. And they had less resources and less support and lower pay than I did. Uh, that pretty much told me that they were doing the same job from a different angle. I may not politically agree with a lot of the uh, uh, the typical Peace Corps person, but I'll tell you what, they do a great job, they do a hard job, they do it for little pay. And uh, that's why they get included in that, because they help spread uh, a positive view of the United States throughout the world. I do want to say something here before I start taking your calls today. Um, I had a great deal of help from listeners, uh, quite a few of you guys, in Denver and Salt Lake both. Uh, if you're listening today or when you finally listen to this, and if you help me in the booth, please send me an email with all your contact information. We didn't get like everybody listed down for that at either expo. I want to make sure you guys that came in the booth and helped me um, that I have you know all your contact info. Uh, we had a lot of great conversations while we were there together. So I figure most of you guys that came and hang out with me, you guys are people that listen to the show every day. So I'm going to throw it out to you there. Uh, I do want to tell you guys a couple things that happened in Salt Lake that were just really kind of cool. One, this guy has his son with him, and he says, do you know who that is? And the kid's like, no, I don't know who he is. He says, Jack, say something to him. So I'm like, hi, folks, this is Jack Spirico with a you know, and I just rattled off like the first 30 seconds of the show. His eyes caught like his bit, like huge. And he was like, then he was scared to talk to me, but he like, he realized who I was when I said that. And I, I just thought that like made my whole day. Um, to, to, to realize that, you know, even though occasionally I might utter a four letter word, uh, some parents will, will have their kids listen. And I think it's, it's, it's a great thing. And, you know, on certain subjects, you may want to listen before you choose to let them listen. But, uh, uh, that, that's cool. I also did have one parent come up to me and say, you know, my kids love listening to you. And if you'll stop cussing, uh, I'll be happy to let them continue listening. And uh, I just told this lady, I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. Uh, it's not like I do it every other word or I even do it every single episode, uh, but there are certain times for authenticity, and that's the way it's going to be. And, and I'd like to tell you folks out there that are like trying to shelter your kids from like any adult word or any adult language or any adult subject, um, you're not going to do it successfully, and if you do, you're probably uh, setting them up for a world where they're going to be really shocked when they see what the rest of the world is like. Um, so, you know, maybe reconsider that. And, you know, what I told this lady is what I would tell anybody who listens to this show. I think it would be a great idea 
for most of you, especially with kids, you know, if you're concerned about this, to listen to an episode before your children do. And I would say that about most TV shows that are on after about 7 o'clock on, on public airways anymore uh, or about any content. It's not the content producer's responsibility to make their programming children-friendly unless it's marketed that way, and my show's not. Uh, those are just a couple things that came up out there. But the overall show was amazing. I got to meet a lot of you guys. Uh, I'm talking to the producers about whether or not I'm going to be doing them next year or not. They're, they're, they're going to be doing them probably in five cities. Um, my instinct, though, is to do things that are, where I'm more accessible to my listeners. So uh, keep your ear to the grindstone, so to speak, with the blog and the social media that I use and the show. And I'll be putting out more events uh, that you guys can come meet me at and hang out with me. We're thinking about doing maybe five, six events next year that are limited just to TSP members. And uh, maybe each event limited to 50 to 100 attendees maximum. And uh, that way we can all sit around for a few days and enjoy each other and talk to each other and get to know each other. Uh, it's A lot of people came up and talked to me out there that was very hard uh, to actually really get to know you because... Uh, I probably met a thousand people in a day. I had people that came to the booth and they came back and I'm like, hey, what's your name? And they're like, I was just here like an hour ago and I felt terrible. But that just happens when there's that many people around. So um, I'm going to try to do things to be more accessible. I know I said that this year, but it got to be crazy this year with the move and all. Uh, next year it's going to happen, folks. So uh, I, I can't wait to meet as many of you guys as possible out there. And with that, let's go ahead and take the first call for today's show. Hi, Jack. Jason from Pennsylvania here. I just wanted to chime in on the importance of community and getting to know your neighbors. Um, we moved into our new house a year ago, and um, I wouldn't say we're super close to our neighbors, but we've started to build up some community, and it recently wound up being very beneficial this week twice. Once when we got flooding in our basement, our neighbor and his sons and then other neighbor's sons were they're helping us pumping out water and running hoses and to have been doing that all by myself would have been beyond laborious and dreary. Um, and then more recently, yesterday, we could not find my daughter um, and became scared when there was one of the youth said, well, there's this red car going up and down really slowly. And you can imagine the fear that struck any father's mind on that. We had been shouting, searching, and we finally saw my daughter asleep under a blanket. Um, but just having the neighbors and the neighbors' kids, you know, they're helping to look for us, voicing their concern and love for my little four-year-old daughter was a tremendous thing. And I just want to encourage all you listeners, if you don't know your neighbors, get out, knock on their door, invite them over coffee, have a barbecue, whatever, but uh, no people around you. It could make a difference in your life or theirs. That's it. Thanks, Jack. Well, first and foremost, I'm glad you found your little girl, and um, I can only imagine uh, what it would be like to be in that situation. The whole time I, I raised uh, Matthew as my stepson and really really as my son, honestly, uh, we never had a time where we really didn't know where he was and we were really panicked and, you know, um, and I, I, I can't imagine what that would have been like. 
Um, so I'm, I'm glad that that worked out. I'm glad you got the uh, basement cleaned up and all as well. But, of course, on the main subject, I, I couldn't agree more. The main reason I played this call is so you can listen to the caller, not listen to my response, folks. Um, I tell you all the time to build community. I, I When I talk about preparing for disasters and emergencies, I say prepare for the things that will happen to you as an individual, you and your neighbors first, because they're the most likely things that you're going to have to deal with. And even if it, I want you to think about this in a new way today, even if it is a national disaster or a statewide disaster, do you know who you're going to be experiencing it with? You, your family, and your neighbors, right? Understand that all, you know, like say, uh, Tip O'Neill's dad said all politics are local. That was a trivia question I did for the contest one time. Um, the reality is all disasters are local. All disasters are local to you if they affect you. Whether it's something that wipes out half your city and you're in the, in the, you know, the aftermath area or it's, it's a job loss. It's all local to you. So start preparing at that level. And the, the people that you're going to most need to rely on are the people that you live with and the people that live next to you. So make sure you are building that community. Thanks for that call. And let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Rational Huster calling from Iowa. Question for you about the Federal Reserve. And the fact that Ben Bernanke and company have become quite a political issue in the GOP primary. We've had several Republican candidates now um, very outwardly publicly criticize Ben Bernanke um, specifically and also the Federal Reserve. And I'm just wondering, uh, you know, I, I have a suspicion that, that you think this is purely political positioning, and I would agree with that. But I also suspect that it could actually impact Federal Reserve policy, at least at least in the short to intermediate term. So I wanted to see what your thoughts were regarding, you know, this, this threat of, of removing him from office, which I'm not sure that they can really do that short of impeaching him until his term is up. But do you think they may actually, whether it's short term or intermediate term, be able to influence the policies at the Federal Reserve? And might this open the door for deflation versus inflation and, and falling commodity prices, particularly that of gold and silver. Uh, I just want to get your take on that. Uh, do you think it's completely complete swap and they'll quickly reverse course if they're in power and the economy falters? They'll quickly hit the print button just like Obama has. Uh, just uh, talk about that for a bit if you could, Jack. Thanks. Well, I, I do think it's purely political, and for me to agree with your take, I would have to believe that Ben Bernanke even gives a shit if he keeps his job, and, and I don't think he cares. Uh, why would he? Let me explain this to you. Let's say I hired you, and you worked for me, and you were my uh, my audio video editor, and I paid you a salary of $50,000 a year, and uh, you had no other real income uh, of any level, and you were paying all your bills for your family with that, and I said, I want my video done this way, and you disagreed, you'd probably do whatever the hell I told you to, because I'm your boss, and I'm paying you, and you rely on me for a source of income. If you were worth like $50 billion and I said, I want you to do this, you didn't want to do it anymore and you didn't want to show up at a certain time, you'd probably give me the middle finger and tell me to go away. Now, if your position actually gave you more control over my company than I had and I had to go through a whole bunch of shareholders, let's call those Congress clowns or cabinet members or whatever, to get rid of you, uh, and if I got rid of you, you still had $50 billion, you probably wouldn't give a shit and you'd do whatever the hell you wanted to. 
Well, that's the best way I can draw an analogy to Ben Bernanke. We'd also have to believe that Ben Bernanke, the Ben Bernanke, is right, the guy that actually does all this stuff and the guy that's actually in charge, where I don't believe that. I don't believe that even the public-facing uh, directors of the Fed Reserve Board are the people that are really making this decisions. I believe those are like, you know, like if you had like aliens invading, right, and they're the aliens, they're like the advanced party, and the mothership's the one actually telling them what the frick they're going to say and what, you know... Uh, Uh, what 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 they want them to say, and uh, that is that's what's going on here. So I think that you know um, the the folks that are actually running the banks that are the member banks uh, that that elect the board and uh, basically tell uh, our, our our you know our our, our uh, ass clown in chief who to appoint uh, are the ones telling the Fed what they're going to do. So. Ben Bernanke's like, in many ways, like a shark's tooth, right? He can cause a lot of damage, uh, but if he falls out, uh, it's, it doesn't fix the problem. Another one just pops right up. So it doesn't matter who the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, is, is run by technically in a public-facing uh, policy today. Uh, and the Fed doesn't care what the government says. The only way the Fed's going to care what the government says is if the government starts moving to... Uh, seriously audit the Fed the way that, that, that Paul, uh, Ron Paul and his son want done, uh, and then they even don't care that much. Until the government is moving to abolish the Fed, to remove their charter, they really do not care. Remember, Ben Bernanke sat in front of Bernie Sanders on the floor of our congressional uh, building and told... Uh, told the, the, the Sanders when he said, will you tell the American people what you did with their money? No. That's what he said. No. Now, eventually we found out where a lot of that money went uh, because we pulled enough strings and pushed enough leverage to find that out. But you know we only found out 10% of the truth. So basically their attitude toward us as a people and uh, toward the government as a whole is go screw it. We're going to do whatever we want to because that's how we operate. Uh, they are the money mafia. That's that's what they are. That's not conspiracy talk. I really, really am going to ask everybody who listens to this show a favor today. Make time, make time sometime before this weekend's, maybe on the weekend or whatever, maybe download it as an audio file and just listen to it in your car instead of my show. I think it's that important. Please listen to or watch The Secret of Oz. You need to understand how the elite banking layer throughout history has viewed the American people. If you don't understand that, then you even you think that this stuff even matters and you don't realize that that's just that's the public talking points. Um, I want you to know that the the people controlling the banking system uh, in this nation in the late 1800s wrote interbank memorandums and articles in public magazines that referred to the American people is I mean, just just to hear this should make your blood boil. Uh, the inferior social stratum. The inferior social stratum. I've got the quote here. Let me actually read this to you. This was by Lewis Evan. Full text of an article published in United States Bankers Magazine, 1892. Um, 
here's what it says. We must go forward cautiously and consolidate each acquired position because already the inferior social stratum of society is giving unceasing signs of agitation. Therefore, prudence dictates to us a line of conduct that seems to give in to the will of the people and to the execution of our plans be well enough established for us to be able to declare our intentions without having to fear organized resistance. Our confidence men shall have to closely watch the Farmers' Alliance and the Knights of Work and take steps immediately either to control both associations in accordance with our interests or to break them. Our men will have to attend the convention that will be held in Omaha on the 4th of July and be in charge of all activities. Otherwise, this convention could muster such an antagonism to our plans that we would have to resort to force to overcome it. Now at the present time, using violence would be premature. We are not yet ready to confront such an assault. Money must first of all seek maximum protection in schemes and legislation. Let us make use of the courts. Let us go forward as fast as possible at perceiving debts, at foreclosing, depriving of recourse to justice. When a certain time limit has transgressed on the debentures and mortgages, When through law's intervention the common people shall have lost their homes, they will be more easy to control and more easy to govern, and they shall not be able to resist the strong hand of government, acting in accordance with the orders of the central power of imperial wealth under the control of the leaders of finance. And you can read the rest if you want to. I will put a link in today's show notes. That was publicly stated in the United States Bankers Magazine in 1892, a magazine by bankers for other bankers. This is how you are viewed by the elite banking layer. Again, let me read just the first sentence. We must go forward cautiously and consolidate each acquired position because already the inferior social stratum of society is giving unceasing signs of agitation. You are the, uh, you are the inferior social stratum. Let me read this to you and see how this makes you feel about 2008, 2009, 2010, and right up into 2011. Let me read this again. When through the law's intervention the common people shall have lost their homes, they will be more easy to control and more easy to govern. <laughs> Listen to it. <laughs> Government acting in accordance with the orders of central power of imperial wealth under the control of the leaders of finance. So much has changed and so much has remained the same. When you ask me if I think we're going to influence the Fed with the current you know, group of political candidates on the Republican side, no, and that is why. Because the same families are still in charge today that were in charge then. To fix the problem, the Fed must go. And anything short of that is insufficient. I had Carl uh, Denninger on last week, and uh, you know he said he would keep the Fed. I didn't argue with him. I don't bring guests on to argue with him. That was his opinion. My opinion is the Fed must go. All right, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Arthas from the forum here. My question up front. When you visit a permaculture site, what are the key aspects you make sure to dig into once you have a general overview of the site? I'm going to be spending the next 16 months traveling extensively across South Asia, and I'll be able to visit uh, many places where ideas like permaculture, key line, and biointensive are taking hold. Once I have a good general overview, in order to capture my thoughts and not overlook important aspects, I'm developing a checklist that I will fill out at each site. I'd love your insights on how you do a site visit and any ideas you have in general when we have the opportunity to visit a site. I emailed you my draft checklist 
feel free to use it any way you want. I'm also publishing it on Google Docs and on my blog. Uh, many thanks in advance. Later, Marcus. Well, first, very cool on the checklist. Please do email it to me. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com is my personal email. I'd love to see what you've come up with so far. Um, the reality is the majority of the sites that I look at from a permaculture perspective are not yet being done in a permaculture manner. Uh, the main reason I get asked to look at somebody's site is because they're, they're starting with nothing and they want to know what to do. Uh, in that respect, what I generally look at first and foremost is energy patterns. Where does the sun rise and set? I have an app on my iPhone I highly recommend sent to me by a listener uh, called Sunseeker where you can see the angle of the sun any day of the year. So I can stand at any place on a, on a site and I can see where is the sun uh, on, the, on the, you know, the, summer and the summer solstice and the winter solstice and the, uh, the fall and, and spring equinoxes. And a lot of what I'm going to do is based on you know, where that sun angle is at different times of the year and, and what's going to be in the way or what's going to be uh, blocking energy I want to block at that point. When I do get to observe a, a site that has been cultivated, whether the person knows or not that they're doing permaculture, there's uh, the, the things I really want to look at is what are they doing and what's working. I want to note that. I think most people would really do well to draw diagrams of it uh, and take notes on it. I have a really bad habit of not doing that. And it's because I have this freakish memory where basically I can tell you what I saw, you know, five years later, ten years later, and, and basically I can sit down and draw it for you then. Uh, I don't think most people can do that. So I think making uh, diagrams of everything. And then I think the, the thing you need to do is, and I think this is almost more important, you need to look at the system and go, based on those energy patterns like wind and, 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 and water energy, remember water moves downhill, water never goes up for free, it always goes down. Uh, based on solar energy, wind, etc., what, what would I change? And I might even ask the person that set it up, why did you do it this way without saying I would change it uh, because I might find out I was wrong. And I think you'll learn more from uh, somebody you know, you making your idea of what you would do, hearing why they did it, and then trying to justify the two and see why maybe you're wrong. Or you know, maybe the person still could have actually tweaked and improved the system. Uh, these are ways I look at it. I would actually love to have more opportunity to, uh, to go on to places where people have designed the entire system with a permaculture mindset from the beginning. I have done that very, very few times, actually. Again, usually what I get is, hey, Jack, would you come out here and there's a vacant lot? And I'm going to build a house. Where do I build the house? How do I structure the house? Where do I put my food forest? You know, where do I put my swales? Uh, that's usually what I get. And I'll go out and I'll say, hey, this is what I would do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But for me, um, uh, you know, and this is the big thing that I get from Lawton and Mollison. Uh, the design is actually simple as soon as you take hold of the concept of energy pattern. And as soon as I determine the basic concepts, one, I need to evaluate all energy on the system to determine if I want to invite it in or block it out. Two, I need to make water take the longest, slowest path off the property. Uh, and three, I need to think about everything I place where I place it and why I'm placing it there before I put it there, especially when it's something permanent like a house or an outbuilding or a tree. You know, if I put a, a broccoli plant somewhere and it doesn't work out, it's not a big deal. If I put a almond tree somewhere and it takes five years for it to establish and have a huge root system and it's not really in an optimal place, that's a much bigger deal. 
but at least I can still cut it down and start over if I really want to. And if I wasn't really sure, I could put two almond trees in two places, and whichever one ends up working out better in the system, leave and remove the second one, and that's not really that big of an investment. But if I put a house somewhere and I put it orientated wrong or I build it with the wrong materials, it's a much bigger consequence. So to me, that's what it's all about are the energy patterns. So on your checklist, rise and fall of the sun on the solstices. That's like two huge things. And where you're at in the world is going to change exactly how those matter. If you're in the tropics, the sun's almost completely overhead at all times. Uh, in some ways, it's very easy to design for. In some ways, it's very, very complex. Trees do funny things in an orchard in the tropics, and they grow in weird patterns. It's, it's kind of interesting, really. Uh, if we're in, in the wind, and you know, we're up into the, uh, Uh, to the north, northern climates, in the temperate climates, uh, then it's going to really be imperative that anything that I'm trying to squeeze one zone up, one USDA, not permaculture, but let's say it's a zone 7 hardy plant, and I'm in 6, if I want to pull that off, I've got to have a south-facing hill uh, that takes maximum advantage of solar gain. There's no way that plant's going to survive uh, in, in, a, in a location where it doesn't get good solar gain. I'm probably going to have to do things like bring rock outcropping around it to get additional heat retention. And I can probably cheat and go at least one zone uh, uh, lower uh, with a plant like that. And, and the same types of things with things that are not uh, hardy with the heat. I might have to do some things to put them in places where they're more protected. So those are the things that I think about when I'm on site. That's, that's the best I can do. Uh, again, I haven't had the opportunity you're going to have. I'll tell you this. Notes, drawings, diagrams, and photographs. I learn the most when I see photographs of existing systems. When I look at that photograph, I can immediately generally understand why things were done and trust in the wisdom of indigenous peoples that you know we can learn from them because they haven't lost the knowledge. A lot of the knowledge that we're regaining in Australia, the UK, and the United States from a permaculture standpoint uh, and taking into places like Africa were never lost in some other places, specifically to a large degree in Asia. So, you know, sometimes when you think they're wrong, they're probably not. Keep that open mind as well. Lots and to this day of digital pictures, lots of memory cards, lots of hard drives, whatever. Take pictures of everything, even things that you're not sure are that important. Uh, what's the space on the drive or the card cost you very, very little. And uh, it might be a year later that you have an epiphany when you look at that photograph of something that, you know, even the person that did it, did it because that's how their dad did it, that's how their granddad did it, that's how their, you know, their ancestors did it, and they don't even know why, but you might figure out why, and then it can be extrapolated to other sites. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Chad from Los Angeles, Southern California area. Just wanted to thank you very much for all you do with the show. My wife and I enjoy it very much. Just wanted to share an experience. My wife just recently, very proud gardener, took pictures of our dinner plate having found that she was able to serve the whole dinner for her family of four out of everything just from our garden. She took pictures, posted it, or texted it around to family members, emailed it, and it was interesting the response because we had people calling us and texting us asking, are we okay? Do we have enough money? Are they eating good? How are the kids doing? And we're proud of this. It was like, no, this is awesome. Everything on our plate, we grew with our hands, a little water, some seeds, and we took pride in it, my wife especially. 
Uh, second thing I just wanted to share with you is uh, just recently I've been working in downtown Los Angeles and working with the power Depart- Department of Power and working on some underground transformers. And one of the superintendents there informed me that in downtown Los Angeles right now, he said there's at least 50, but probably 60, 70 underground transformers that provide power to all these high-rises that the lids are welded shut on. No one's allowed to go down and work on them because they're filled with water, they're old, they're antique relics of transformers. The parts aren't available, and it's just dangerous to send the guys down in there. So that's their answer is put their head in the sand, weld it shut, and he said basically we'll wait till it blows up, then we'll dig up the street, and we'll replace it with a new one. So I asked him, I said, so what do you think is going to happen when that big earthquake happens? And he didn't have a reply. He just said we're going to have a whole heck of a lot of work repairing all these transformers that are blown. But, you know, downtown Los Angeles is known for a very cordial, patient, peace-loving people that they're not prone to riot. Yeah, right. Well, we'll see what what happens when it does happen. Well, the uh, family response, I'm a little bit surprised by, I guess. Uh, not not highly. It's it's weird to me that people's first reaction to, look, we, we, we prepared an entire meal from food we grew in the backyard would be, are your kids okay? Are they going to be all right? And the answer is probably, they're probably better than your kids that are eating freaking Frito pie. You know, Fritos, Wolf Chili, and cheese, and that's a healthy meal. I mean, um, nothing wrong with a guilty, guilty indulgence once in a while. It's some pretty good stuff. But there are parents out there that feed their kids that uh, as a matter of course. And, and then would look at of somebody who grew and produced their own food with their family and not just are eating this highly nutritious food, but actually got the family bonding experience from it and developed the skill set from it and say, are you guys, uh, are you guys heading down to the homeless shelter or something, man? We will help you out. I mean, so that's a little bit weird. And I, I think I'd say to anybody out there, keep sharing stuff like that anyway. Uh, and tell people, no, we you have all the normal food we want, but why don't you guys come over and we'll serve you the food and we'll show you why. It's a great way to share things. Remember, I say gardening is a gateway drug into the into the realm of preparedness. It really is. When you garden, you get surplus. Surplus has to be stored. Now you're storing food. I got you, right? Um, now, on uh, the second one, I'm actually highly surprised. Um, part of me isn't because the fact that we have crumbling infrastructure is well documented, but I, I, let me get this straight. So we have these transformers running big high-rise buildings in L.A. There's no parts for them. They're so dangerous that even a highly trained technician can't work on them without risk of being killed. Uh, we're not sure what to do. Uh, they're they're over 50 years old. They're clearly past their life cycle. L.A. is broke and doesn't have money to fix them. So instead of saying we need to cut some wasteful spending so we can buy some transformers and, and be ready for these things to go down and not have downtown L.A. be burning underground while the electricity is out. And remember, folks, we just had 6 million people without power because a technician out in a desert replaced one piece of monitoring equipment and he didn't even do anything wrong. Okay, so that one transformer that we think would just take out these high-rise buildings, let's be honest about that could be a cascade grid failure across God knows how much of the United States, seriously. And the solution is weld it shut and pray. I, Folks, 
If you need another reason to get serious about having basic preparedness as a part of your life, or if you're talking to a grasshopper that wants to stay a grasshopper and says, what could possibly go wrong, please play for them. Not even my response. Just this caller's call. Do you really believe that L.A. is the only city that's done this? Do you really believe there aren't rusted, welded, shut transformers in every major city in America? New thing on the radar. Uh, I, I looked on Google a little bit. I couldn't find anything about welded shut transformers. If anybody can find any documented information, photographs or articles or reports on this, please get that to me. I'd actually, if I can start to get a paper trail on this, I'd like to get really a lot more information, reach out and find an electrical engineer that works on power infrastructure, and let's do something about how dangerous this really is. It sounds like we've uncovered something uh, that is probably easy to find, easy to document if we look in the right place, uh, that is a serious threat to our way of life. Probably a bigger threat than the vaulted EMP attack. Um, If this is true, and I have no reason to doubt this caller that it is, and I'm sure if it's true it's more widespread than L.A., this is something that could cause cascade failures um, with just the right little push over the edge. So stay prepared, folks. And remember, one of your, your, your you know primary survival uh, components is energy, and this is an example of why. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Russell from Covington, Louisiana. Look, um, I was listening about the uh, show you had with Brian about the fermented foods, and I know you were in the Army. I don't know if you spent time in Germany. I went to Korea, and over in Korea they have kimchi, which is fermented cabbage, but they have a ton of red pepper in there also that's also fermenting in there and turnips that's in there also. Uh, I just want to get your feedback on that, and you know, because I like sauerkraut, so I really like kimchi. All right, thank you. I'm figuring what you really want is my opinion on the uh, nutritional value and the fermented, you know, value uh, of kimchi, and I would say it's probably equivalent to sauerkraut. Uh, my opinion on the flavor of kimchi versus the flavor of sauerkraut, uh, I don't like kimchi. But if you do, that's great. Um, I've really tried to like kimchi. It just sounds like something I should like. I mean, it, you know, I like sauerkraut. You know, you don't, and I understand that. But uh, it has a, I don't know, a, a flavor that turns me off. Maybe every time I've ever eaten it, it was cold. Maybe if it was warmed up, I would like it better. I don't know. Um, I also had a sergeant in the Army who was married to a Korean uh, wife that he, I guess he'd met when he was deployed there. Uh, and he's come wake me up once in a while and, I think he'd eat kimchi for breakfast and not brush his teeth. Maybe that soured me on it. I don't know. But uh, I don't like it. But I, I, I would say that uh, if you do, I bet you it provides all of the nutritional benefits that any other fermented food would do. And I think it's something that, you know, find some fermented food that works for you and make it, you know, a routine part of your diet. And I think you will benefit immensely. Um, I really thought that was a great interview that we had and uh, something maybe I've been leaving a little lacking. It's something I do once in a while, but, uh, you know, I just put uh, 24 uh, cabbage plants in the ground right before we left into the new hugel culture bed. I've got purple and green cabbage growing, and it's all slated for sauerkraut. Uh, for me, sauerkraut is something I've always liked. I, you know, if I make 
bratwurst. I like sauerkraut and bratwurst. Uh, my family, though we were Ukrainian, there was a lot of German influence in the area as well uh, that my grandparents picked up on. We always made a huge thing of pork and sauerkraut um, for uh, New Year's. I know down in the south, you know, I learned about eating black-eyed peas, but up north it was pork and sauerkraut. And the sauerkraut was sauerkraut we made in our own crocs. And uh, I like the stuff with caraway seeds in it. I, I really like that. I think they're awesome in sauerkraut, the Bavarian style. Uh, and I used to have to put my own seeds in because my grandmother didn't like the seeds. But, uh, you know, either way, uh, make it part of your diet. If you like kimchi, and I'm sure there's tons of other regional-based uh, fermented foods, you know, check them all out. And I think they all have very, very positive benefits of uh, lactobacterium. And I had somebody, I wanted to bring this up. This is a great opportunity to bring it up. Somebody said to me, there's no way in the comments on that show that we know that the uh, ancient people ate fermented foods. Um, I'll tell you, first of all, yes, we do. Because anybody, anywhere that has food in surplus tries to save it, and fermentation is a natural process. And before the days of supermarkets and chemicals and sprays, uh, those lactobacterium were there. And in many cases, even if the food wasn't fermented, They would eat the food with the lactobacterium, and our bodies and our chemistry developed and evolved around having that lactobacillus as part of our diet, even if it was uh, being consumed without a full fermentation. I would also tell you that the very first way that people figured out uh, beyond letting it dry out in the sun that you could preserve food was to put salt on it. Uh, that, that, is, that, is, that predates agriculture by a long way. Um, so when you salt certain vegetation and put it into something like a leather sack and carry it around with you, it basically makes a form of sauerkraut. So I think that uh, that type of food has been in the human diet uh, along with meat for a very, very long time. But if you like kimchi, brother, have at it. Uh, but uh, uh, you come see me, you bring your kimchi, I'll bring my sauerkraut, and we'll, uh, we'll each stick to our own. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, it's Wes from the forums uh, based out of good old Memphis, Tennessee, home of Elvis. I uh, wanted to call in and, and ask you if you could do a show or make some comments around uh, health and fitness and, and what you think about that in particular and, and how that pertains to us uh, surviving, you know, if, if times do, in fact, get tough. Uh, and then also to make a recommendation for something that might be worth talking about with the listeners some point, uh, an actual program that I've done myself that's helped me uh, cut a little bit of weight, you know, get, get uh, down to what's considered a safe weight uh, and, uh, and build a little bit of muscle mass, not that beefcake nonsense, but just, you know, being a little bit healthier. And that's a program by a guy uh, by the name of Bill Phillips, and it's a program called Body for Life that he did back in the 90s. Anyhow, I uh, would love to see my question and comment on the air. Uh, love your podcast. It's awesome. I listen to it many hours every week. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a godsend, really. It really is. You're doing a great service to the community. Take care, Jack. Well, as anybody that's uh, seen some of the video work I did maybe, let's say, two years ago and back, uh, knows I had quite a bit of extra weight on me. And uh, I, I, he mentioned 60 pounds, uh, 50 pounds, and it's, it's over 60 pounds now that I've lost. And those of you that have seen me recently at the Expo know uh, it's not an exaggeration. I've taken an awful lot of weight off, and uh, I'm in a lot better shape. And I can tell you how I did it. And I can tell you this is my view of fitness. I did it by eating good food, and I don't, I don't count my calories. Uh, I eat most ex almost exclusively meat and vegetables. Uh, I eat very little starchy, carbohydrate-based foods. And uh, I, I don't worry about fat. And I, I really have not worried about fat count at all. 
Uh, I'll eat a big old hunk of ribeye for dinner probably tonight. Um, you know, and about the only time that I go off of that and eat things like candy and bread and stuff like that is when I travel. Like recently, uh, out in Denver, went to a restaurant. They threw a big old plate of bread in front of me. And once in a while, I'll have some bread, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but that's how I did it from a dietary standpoint. From a physical standpoint, uh, I am now living a life very similar to the hunter-gatherer ancestors that we all come from. I do not use dumbbells. I don't do push-ups. I don't do pull-ups. I don't do any. I don't do what most people would consider cardio. I take a lot of walks. I work in my garden, which is a lot of weight-bearing exercise and things like that. Uh, but it's not done in repetitions and sets. Um, I do see a place for that. I was actually um, someone who achieved what was called master physical fitness status in the military, which basically meant I scored 290 out of 300, and actually it was a 292, I believe, uh, on one of my physical fitness tests. So I know all about push-ups and sit-ups and running and all the other grass drills and crap like that we did in the military. And I'll admit that it can get you into really optimum condition uh, when done and practiced religiously. But what I've kind of taken away from my experience is that it actually causes, in many cases, a lot of uh, injury to the body. Rotary cuffs, rotor cuffs, and stuff like that. The shoulders are these huge amounts of injury that, like that, in the military from those types of exercises. And when I look back at our ancestors who were as fit as most Olympic athletes, none of them ever lifted a barbell. I guarantee you, none of them ever did a push-up except when they were laying on the ground to to get up and look over something uh, when they were, you know, stalking prey. And uh, what they really did do was uh, a whole lot of eating good food, uh, walking anywhere they went, they walked. Uh, anything they needed to get from one place to another, they carried there. And uh, when they had to run, they ran in short uh, strides, uh, you know, sprint to get away from something or to capture something. And uh, they spent most of their time uh, either laying around uh, or, or, uh, or walking somewhere and carrying something. So that's that's actually I to me that is actually the recipe for functional fitness. If you do push-ups and sit-ups or go to the gym or whatever, I'm not putting you down. Uh, but I can tell you what worked for me and what continues to work for me is uh, taking a three or four mile walk up and down big hills and just walking. And I don't walk at any high rate of speed. My buddy Brian Black's coming uh, uh, up this weekend, and we're going to do some fishing. I'm sure we'll take some walks. I'm going to have to kick him in the ass about this high-speed walking he likes to do. Uh, I like to actually see what's around me and observe what's around me. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors didn't have this you know, time to be flying through the, uh, the, the woods when they took a walk. They needed to observe everything because there were things out there they needed to find to eat, and there were things out there that needed to eat them. And unless they were running to bash a rabbit on the head or something, they probably probably moved at somewhat of a slower pace, especially if they're carrying stuff. And if you wanted it to go with you, you had to carry it before they, you know, everybody had a, a horse and buggy, so to speak, or, you know, today we have cars. And, and to me, that's it. Now, I'll, I'll try to do a show on functional fitness. Honestly, in the beginning, I, I felt like I didn't have a right to. Uh, I was carrying enough extra weight that I didn't feel I had a right to get on the air and lecture you guys about the importance of health, even though I was doing plenty to change it. Um, anybody that would have looked at me at the time would have said, well, who's this fat guy, right, telling me how to live my life? Uh, and, and it took me, you know, two years to get to where I'm at. And to get to where I really want to be might take me another full year. And I don't care that it takes me that long. It took me, you know, 18 years to get into the bad shape. 
Uh, it was a very slow incremental process. And I actually believe if we take someone, uh, and let's say in one year, uh, take a hundred pounds of weight off and take them down to a good weight for them, it is really a recipe for them to end up with all that weight going back on them. I think that maybe, let's say, for every five years it took you to get someplace, it should take you about a year to get away from it. So if you spent 15 years getting your body out of shape, plan on spending, if you do it the right way, the next three years getting your body back into shape. But it's a lot like that, isn't it? So those are my views. And that doesn't mean that we don't make radical changes at the beginning, but the body's going to change much more slowly. Um, I don't believe that putting the body into a state of starvation is a good way to lose weight. I believe to put the body into a state of optimal nutrition is a way to lose weight. I'm going to have a guy on either by the end of this month or the beginning of next month named Greg Ellis. I'm also trying to get Rob Wolf on the show, but Greg Ellis is uh, is taking things even to another level than, than Rob Wolf has. He's a guy that's working with my old partner, Neil Franklin, right now, and the way he describes it is if you feed the body optimal nutrition, you get the metabolism running the right way, you can throw a bunch of fat and protein in the body. It's like throwing a dry log on a fire. And it burns it quick at high-intensity energy. Uh, and if we take the metabolism slowed down uh, and the blood sugar messed up with lots of carbohydrate and we throw it on there, it's like throwing a wet log on a hot fire. It smolders and it produces a lot more toxins in the body. Um, I know some people are going to disagree with me on this, but I believe the human body developed. I don't care what you believe about science or religion. The, 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 if we look at the, the known history of human beings walking on planet Earth, they developed around consuming vegetables, fruit, and protein-based fat. That's what they ate. Birds and birds' eggs. Rabbits and rabbits' guts. Right, and, and one more time, for those of you that are afraid rabbits, you know, about the fat, I've explained it before, but I'm going to shorten it for you today. Fry the dadgone rabbit in some bacon and shut up and eat it and don't worry about the fat because that'll add some fat for you. Two strips of bacon and saute that rabbit and then grill it, uh, you know, a little bit to finish it up and you can stop worrying about uh, the rabbit not having enough freaking fat in it as if that's a problem in America today. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. And I will try to do a show on functional fitness, and maybe we'll just cover a lot of that when I have Greg Ellis on the air. But I think he's a really switched-on guy. Let's go ahead and take that next call. Hi, Jack. This is Craig up in Montana. Hey, I have a question about vehicle maintenance. I've heard from various sources that, you know, if you have an older vehicle and you want to use a high-mileage blend, it is really not any different than, say, you know, just a regular blend, blend or, or the store brands. So I was kind of wondering, is it really worth spending extra money for a, you know, high-mileage blend from Valvoline as opposed to just paying, you know, $2 less for, say, an O'Reilly's brand? I was wondering if you might have any background on this because I haven't been able to get a straight answer from anyone. Thank you. Bye. Understanding this is simply my opinion based on being a mechanic for a number of years in the military, working on tr trucks and cars throughout my entire life. And uh, what I know about basic uh, physics and oil and the way oil works, it's all bullshit. All right, And uh, I don't have a source to cite for you. I don't have a scientific study to cite for you. But I'm also, in conjunction with having that background in mechanic, mechanics and working on vehicles, remember what I did before I did the show was I ran a marketing services company. I've worked with great marketers. One of my marketing mentors, folks, was the guy that developed uh, the American Airlines uh, Platinum Program. All right, so I mean, I've worked with some big time marketers. I've worked with small time marketers. Uh, I've consulted with a lot of companies. And this is what I'm going to tell you about marketing. If a marketer can add something to a label that will make you more likely to pay $2 for it, and he can legally get away with it 
and charge a premium, he will do it. Period. End of story. That's what I base my opinion on, but I'm going to state flat out that I it is opinion, um, but I, I wouldn't spend more money for a high-mileage blend. I just wouldn't do it. Uh, I do think there's a lot that can be said for some of the synthetic blends that really do sell out of premium, uh, but like I use a synthetic oil that's designed for European diesel engines in my Jetta because that's what it's specified to require, but it also goes 10,000 miles between oil changes. So I might pay three times as much for the oil, but I only do one-third of the oil changes. So I'm using the spec uh, product, and I'm paying the same real price. So I think that there are places where some of the synthetic blends make sense if they're specified to the motor. But I think if you just have an old big V8 pickup truck and you're dumping 10W30 in it, if it's Castro or O'Reilly or whatever or so-and-so so high mileage, it's the same shit. Throw it in your car, drive on, pay less money. Uh, next call. Hey, Jack. This is Carney Princess from the forum. I uh, just wanted to... Uh I guess give a piece of advice for some of the listeners that we, uh, that we have the, um, what I was, what I've been doing is ripping a bunch of DVDs that I get off my Netflix account onto external hard drives. And what this has allowed me to do is create a, uh, sort of cache of entertainment, if you will. And as you know from the, from the military, and I, I think that's, uh, that's, uh, you know, in a survival situation, things would be very similar to that. There's a lot of boring times. And uh, like I can tell you right now, I've been doing this for about six months, and I've got over 2,500 movies that I don't need to have a giant shelf in my you know, living room to hold. They all just fit right on a couple of these two-terabyte hard drives. Uh, it's a, a bit of an investment uh, as far as money goes, but I, I think it's a good one. And I've certainly enjoyed being able to just think of a movie I want and then look it up on a hard drive and play it. Uh, thanks for the show. Bye. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, uh, let me give you my thoughts on number one. I'm sure some people out there have some ethical concerns about this. I'm not one of them. Uh, if you were getting these off of torrents or something, it would kind of bug me. It really would because uh, basically then you're, you're getting the content uh, and you're just taking it. What you're actually doing, though, is you're subscribed to a service where you're paying for the content and you're making a copy of it, and, and, and then you're retaining the copy, which means if there are millions and millions of Netflix people out there doing that, um, there's a tremendous market uh, to produce the DVDs and send them out to people, uh, which means content providers are getting plenty of money out of it. So uh, I just see it as a new distribution model, and I think if companies were smart, uh, what they would actually do today is they'd say instead of eight bucks, how about this? How about it's twenty, and we send you cop, you know, we send you like uh, designed to be ripped. Yeah, instead of trying to fight it, just send, you know, make it easy as possible for people to actually do what you're doing. I mean, that's a subscription model that I suggested for music. Uh, you know, back in the early days of iTunes, everybody thought it was crazy. And sooner or later, music's going to basically go there, and it's kind of doing it now. Um, so I have no ethical concerns about it because you are paying to acquire the content, and some of that money is going to content creators. Uh, and most people that you know would wouldn't buy the Dadgon DVDs anyway. Uh, as far as the entertainment value, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, you can use a very low end power backup system to power uh, what you need to be able to, to, to play those movies, even if the grid's down. And as far as the boredom, yes, uh, I don't think people realize when assist when your systems of support are taken away, how bored people get. I'll tell you this: 
a lot of those really cool Paragord projects, you know, bracelets and all these different knots and everything, do you know where they came from? Soldiers sitting out in the field with a big old hunk of Paracord going, hmm, what can I do with this? Uh, trying to occupy their minds when they were deployed to a place where they had to sit around and do a whole lot of nothing and be on quote-unquote guard duty or stand-to or alert uh, in, in situations where odds of war nothing was going to happen, but they were there and you had to have them doing something. Uh, so there's a lot of what you'd call field art uh, that's come out of that. Some of it, you know, is actually some pretty cool stuff. On uh, the show Pawn Stars, or it was either Pawn Stars or it was American Pickers, is the store, uh, the show that it was on. There was a battleship built by the men that served on the same battleship. So they had a battleship that was like, I'd say about five feet long, built out of junk. Uh, that served, I remember it was like USS whatever, you know, and the men that served on it during World War II built it using scrap material on the ship, and it was a model of the ship they were serving on. And uh, the guy was able to get it for a reasonable price, and he sold it for a big profit. There's some cool stuff that's come out of the military like that, field art stuff, but it's it's been exactly that, combating boredom. So however you do it, I recommend that you do have some sort of Entertainment cash. I think that's a great, um, a great idea. An entertainment cash of some sort beyond a few decks of playing cards. I think that's a lot of people's plan. When I'm, when I'm hunkering down, we'll play cards. That gets boring quick. The more material like that you can, you can have in the, you know, lowest power draw requirement and the lowest spatial footprint uh, is a good idea. I know a lot of people do the Netflix or Blockbuster thing or whatever and they burn DVDs and that's fine, but it takes a lot of space up. You know, even a, a 300 DVD wallet is pretty big, and those things become damaged. If you have them on uh, drives, it actually would be, uh, and those terabyte drives have gotten pretty cheap, too. It'd be relatively inexpensive to even back one drive up to another drive and have two copies. I still have a very, very small footprint. So I like the idea. Uh, it's something I haven't really done, but it's something I may look into. Uh, I just did a show where I was talking about getting rid of stuff, and I do have a ton of DVDs that we've purchased. And I sit there and I look at them and I go, we don't watch them that often, but I want them around if, you know, other systems are not available to occupy the mind. Uh, a lot of times for me, I'll be watching some kind of fantasy thing and it actually makes real relevant thoughts work in my head better. And I'll actually come up with relevant ideas even though what I'm watching is completely fictitious. Uh, so I like that idea and it would be a way for me to get rid of all those daggone DVDs. Now I just have to figure out technology involved in decrypting them and getting them done. My son knows how to do it, but, uh, but I've just never bothered to learn. So good call. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, it's Dan from St. Louis. Um, I've been looking into backpacking and realized that there's a lot of stuff that you can kind of uh, coincide with survival-type stuff with backpacking, especially lightweight backpacking, as far as, like, uh, bug gear and uh, maybe get-home bags and stuff like that. They always seem to uh, break it down by caloric intake for their food and stuff, and it's very uh, small, compact stuff, so... Just, uh, you know, wonder what your thoughts are on that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, thanks for everything you do. Bye. Well, I think there's a lot that we can take from that. I do think that some of the ultra, super lightweight backpacking gear uh, that people pay, you know, a two or three hundred percent premium on to save an ounce is a waste of money. I think that, you know, if, if I can do my pack at 24 pounds versus 30 pounds, and my 30-pound pack will cost me hundreds and hundreds of dollars less, I need to learn to carry the extra six pounds. 
Um, that, that's how I feel. I know Dave Canterbury feels very strongly the same way. Uh, he, he was very clear about that at his keynote address in Denver, uh, when I was there with him for the Self-Reliance Expo there a few weeks ago. Um, but if you, if you got the money and you want it, I have no problem with it. On the backpacking itself with the caloric intake and calculating the stuff and all, I do want you to consider one thing. I think you can learn a lot from the skill set. You can lose a lot of the equipment in day-to-day, uh, use for, for survival planning and preparedness planning. But backpackers plan, for a known period of time on a known trail going to between two known destinations. And as long as that happens, it seems to work out pretty well for them. Every year we hear a story about someone where it didn't quite work out, and they end out there for the next couple days, and they end up really freaking hungry. Um, so one thing we can learn from that is, is to pack more. I think a lot of the food, uh, not so much the pre-made food, but the food that these guys as a community have developed uh, to cut down the cost of their backpacking food and make their own, uh, we can learn a lot from that. And we can make a lot of our own trail food, and we can use that food uh, in our own home and, and, and as for long-term preps as well. And my favorite website for that is called backpackingchef.com. Uh, I'm going to do a video for you guys eventually. We have a bunch of video planned uh, coming up in the uh, the next couple months because we're actually going to be home now and the weather's nice and we've got a great banner to put as a backdrop uh, that we did for the shows and we got a whole uh, series of, of videos. But one of them I want to do for you is how to dehydrate ground meat. Uh, people think you can't do it. You can. And backpacking chefs, where I learned how to do it using some breadcrumbs to make sure it rehydrates right. Uh, but you cook it, and then you dehydrate it. And I think that uh, if you check that site out, I think you'll you'll find a lot of really cool recipes. Again, it's uh, it's backpackingchef.com, and I will put a link in today's show notes to that for you. But I like the overall concept. I just think that we need to realize that some of these guys that do these you know caloric calculations and get their weight down to almost nothing and what have you as far as what they're carrying these guys are basically even though most of them are you would call them amateurs because it's not their job they're professionals i mean that's what they are they're professional backpackers uh what they do is really impressive but a lot of it will not translate down to you and your six-year-old and your eight-year-old in a bug out situation a lot of it will but much of it won't. So temper the extreme examples of what's capable with the more realistic example of you living in the real world and dealing with a disaster. And if you if you bring the two together and you rationalize the two sides, I think yeah, we can learn a ton from that. But again, if I have, you know, one stove that's, you know, titanium that screws onto a butane thing and it weighs, you know, 1.5 ounces and another one that weighs 3.5 ounces and the, the lighter one is $100 more, I'll carry the extra two ounces. But that, that's, again, that's just me. And I'm not doing eight-day treks. Uh, I did do over 350 miles of hiking right after I got out of the Army in one straight hike. And all of this lightweight crap didn't even exist back then. So I can tell you, it's not needed, but it sure is nice if you got the funds. Let's take, I think, one more, and we're going to wrap up for today. Uh, hey, Jack, this is James from uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Um, I love all the stuff you do about uh, aquaponics. However, I was wondering if you ever heard that being done in raising shrimp. Um, I have this problem where I just don't like fish. So uh, if you can let me know what you find out about that, it would be much appreciated to hear it. Thank you. 
Well, it's not something I have any direct experience with or even any indirect experience, like having been to somebody's system and actually seen it in operation. But I've investigated it because I have a lot of uh, – I like fish, right? So I don't have the same problem you do, but I like shrimp. Um, and I thought that would be great. Shrimp actually sell uh, at quite a high premium over fish uh, in, a, in a lot of ways as well. So it would be a more uh, high-dollar crop, so to speak. So it was it's something that I've really looked at. And the big problem isn't raising them once they're kind of, you know, baby shrimps up to big shrimps. It's pretty easy to do with freshwater shrimp. Uh, the complexity is in breeding them. Uh, the, the baby shrimps, the fry, the plankton eating, little tiny microscopic, almost little, you know, newborn shrimps, uh, require a lot of care that if you have a silly setup to do it, it's actually pretty easy. And that's why there's a lot of shrimp breeding operations out there and a lot of farm raised shrimp, but, They need a certain amount of salinity, for instance. So even though the freshwater shrimp can live in fresh water, they generally breed in brackish water, apparently, in the wild. And the babies uh, need that salinity uh, for a certain period of their life. They also feed on plankton, uh, so you have to take that into account. Um, my, my thoughts are, as I, as I look toward building my aquaponics system this winter to be ready to go next spring, is possibly using crayfish. Uh, crayfish don't have those problems. Uh, crawfish tails are very, very similar to um, uh, shrimp in taste and flavor. Uh, they breed very, very rapidly. Uh, they grow fairly rapidly. Um, and basically, if you put them into a system, they'll reproduce for you, and you don't have to worry so much about salinity counts and things like that. So um, that might be another alternative for you. If anybody ha out there has direct or at least you know maybe one-off experience with doing freshwater shrimp, Uh, in aquaponic system, uh, let me know about it. I'd like to know specifically on the breeding side. The problem I have with a lot of aquaponics people is all of their, their, their fish stock is purchased. Well, if I spend a dollar for a finger, fingerling tilapia and I spend four dollars feeding them and I've got five bucks into that fish by the time I fillet him, And I get enough uh, weight by fish that, you know, basically I end up with, you know, a little under a half a pound of filet. I really lost money on the whole operation. I have better quality food, there's no doubt. Um, but if I'm breeding that fish, if I put a couple, uh, you know, put a couple females and a male into an actual fish tank in the house and breed hybrids to go in my system that don't reproduce so I can control the population of my system. And for those of you, how do you keep them from breeding when you don't want them to breed? You put a tank divider in. You keep the male away from the females unless you want spawning for your next generation. And if I do that, uh, my cost of production is what I feed them. And the more duckweed that I can grow, that I can feed them, et cetera, the less cost I have overall. And if I put in a system that largely runs on uh, on solar panels and batteries, then I can almost you know, have no real input cost into that system and also have a very sustainable system. So to me, with an aquaponics setup, whatever I'm producing, I want to be able to take breeding under my control as well. So that's my concern with shrimp. If you're buying the shrimp fry, and I don't know if that's the proper term for them, I don't think you'd have any problems at all doing this. But I just don't know how well your investment return is going to be. I do know you can feed them spent distiller's grain. Uh, and a lot of people do that, and you can get that pretty cheap. So that's another thought with that. And with that, I think I've got things wrapped up. Again, everybody that came out to the Salt Lake City Self-Reliance Expo, thank you. I had a wonderful time. 
those of you, again, that worked in the booth with me at either expo, please email me. Remind me of all your contact information so I can put you guys kind of on your own independent list of, of you know, folks that, I, that I've actually been out there with and spent some time with because with as many of you guys as there were and as many people coming at me, uh, I don't have everybody's info, and I'd like to have that. And those of you that want to get some time to spend with me, uh, you know, actually face-to-face, we're going to make ourselves available in the coming year. Uh, stay tuned. We'll try to give you plenty of advance notice. Do really plan on maybe having something available in Estes Park, Colorado in the, in the summer next year. Uh, it might even be working with somebody else to do that. Uh, but it's a beautiful place, and I think it's a place that if you uh, have to take a family vacation to make it work, it'll be worth your while. And that's what I want to do. If I want to do like a big event in the summertime, you bring the kids and the wives or, or something like that, I want to make it something where even if the wife's not into the whole prepper thing and the kids aren't, they have a blast. They can go their own way, and Estes Park would be a beautiful place for that. With that, I'm uh, ready to wrap up today. Again, thanks for tuning in. Uh, kicking the week off with the call-in show is kind of cool. Maybe we'll flip those around and start doing the call-in shows on Monday. For some reason, I kind of enjoyed it today. I dig it. Uh, remember, if you want to be on a show like this, 866-65-CHINK. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.